We've been studying the story of Samuel in the first uh, book of us, First Samuel, because Samuel was a very critical character in the Old Testament, in biblical history. He was the last prophet, I mean first prophet and the last judge, and he was a kingmaker. And just like uh, before uh, Jesus, God sent uh, John the Baptist, God sent uh, Samuel to prepare the monarchy, especially the coming of King David. Today, we're going to learn about a profoundly unique story about God. And I want to highlight the word unique because God is the most unique being in the entire universe or beyond the universe. And what is the biblical word that describes God's uniqueness? Guess what is the word that really conveys God's uniqueness. God that is holy. That God is a holy. Speaking about holy, this adjective that describes God repeated, repeated more than any word in the Old Testament. Even more than righteous. We know that God is righteous, but God is a holy repeated much more. It's repeated 551 times compared to 493 times of a righteous. And this word is the only word in the Bible that was repeated three times. In the Bible, usually something important repeated twice. You know, when God called Abraham, Abraham, when he's about to offer this Isaac as sacrifice, or when God called Moses, something important God called always twice. This word, holy, 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 repeated three times by angels who are worshiping God around his throne. Now, today, we'll learn about the meaning of a holiness in one way. So now, what is a holy? What is your understanding of a holy? In Hebrew word, for holy is a kadosh, which literally means set apart from or we might call it sacred, or something, whatever that pertaining to divine realm, that's we call it holy. And Greek word is a little more crispy about meaning of a holy. That is a Greek word for hagios. And this hagios simply means different or other. So holiness literally means otherness, otherness. So in one word, holy, I'll define like this. Utterly different, utterly unique, and now I'm using a very heavy theological word. God is imminently transcendent and transcendently imminent. All right, now I confuse you, right? God is so above us, yet so close to us. That is an incredible part of God. So a lot of times, we are to understand, best way to understand God is a paradox. He is above, He is in us. He is intimately transcendent to us, and then transcendently intimate to us. And today's story, that will reveal. Today's story is a longer story in the story of Samuel. It covers three chapters, and I'm going to read as much as possible to give you a taste of it. 
The scholars call it arc narrative, arc narrative. It involves the arc of God. And that's why I titled the sermon, Read It by the Lost Ark, Read It by Lost Ark. Obviously, I'm inspired by Steven Spielberg's movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But like the movie, the hero is not humans. Hero is God. And actually, humans make a mistake from beginning to the end. We, the Israel, they lose Ark of God. But that doesn't mean God loses us. So I hope today's story will give us too serious understanding about holiness of God. Kind of even warning. And number two, it also gives us surprise hope about God's holiness. So first part, we're going to look at the lost ark. And second part, how the lost ark raided us, surprisingly. So let's turn to our passage, which is 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. So let me read verse 1 and 2. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at the Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. The context was the first recorded war of Israel against the Philistines. Philistines was a formidable enemy or adversary of Israel in 11th century before Christ. Just a little bit about Israel, uh, about background, Philistines, they are not original Canaanite. They came late to the uh, ancient Palestine, just like an Israelite came to promised land after Exodus. Philistines, they are related to Phoenicians. And anyone knows about ancient history, Phoenicians, they are seafaring colonizers of a known world back then, entire Mediterranean world. Not only Phoenicia and Sidon, they built even Carthage and Spain and the several seaports. I even hear that they came, they traded in India. Indian, you know, old language Sanskrit came from Phoenicia. So this is a very advanced people. And they are now trying to claim Palestine as their homeland and they are fighting against the Israelites, this battle of do or die. And they actually had advanced technology, and they have a good grasp of iron you know, uh, technology, whereas the Israelite is barely surviving in the late Bronze Age. So actually, you know, Israelite were undeveloped nation, and the Philistines were much more uh, undeveloped nation, developing nation, sorry and the Philistines were developed nations. Now, let's see. So today's first battle, Israelite lost, and they, the 4,000 of their soldiers were killed. And now let's look at their response, verse three. When soldiers returned to camp, elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring a defeat on us today before Philistine? Let us bring Ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, and so that he may go before, with us and save us from the hand of the Philistines, our enemies. The assessment of Israelites about their defeat was a half correct. They saw, the correct part is that they saw 
their failure in their failure came from God's absence. And this is a well justified because if you look at the Israel's history, especially Joshua chapter 6, when Israel experienced the first defeat in their conquest of a promised land, how did that happen? If you remember Joshua chapter 6, after the, you know, uh, uh, their victory in Jericho, one of them, a guy named Achan, he stole the good that belonged to God. As a result of that, they experienced the first defeat. God didn't go with them the next town to conquer, and that's how Israelites learn. We need to go with God in every battle to win the victory. So their assessment is correct. Now, their solution is very, very incorrect. So their solution was what? Let's bring Ark of God to the battlefield, and the Ark of God will become a, some kind of a magical weapon that will help us to win the battle. Now, people of God, we have a history of infamous mistakes of securing God's presence and blessings in our lives. Then Israelite is just a, you know first one. We Christians also made a false assumptions about God and tried to control God's presence in our life and squeeze His blessings, whatever that we want from God. So, for instance, in medieval time, Christians. They thought God's power is in the relics. Relics are the so-called uh, whatever items belong to the saint. So-called, uh, it's like a paraphernalia of a saint. So whatever, you know, a cup the saint drink and whatever clothes they wore, those have a spiritual power of the saint. And it was a very expensive commodity. So much so that Augustine, in his book, in his you know, pastoral book, he kind of rebuked the people not to buy, buy into those kind of superstitions. Now, do you, let me give you one picture about how Christians are using God in the wrong way. And that is, this. I'm, so during the wartime World War II, Nazis has inscribed in, on their belt do you see the symbolism of a Nazi on the middle, right? And above, in German word, and German is a God mit uns, which means God with us. God with us. Nazis were Christians. They claim that God is with us. We're going to win this war. For the, I'm sorry, I can't go on. But even civil war in our country, Southerners or Northerners, they all invoke the name of God. Now, what about today? Do you know conservative Republican politicians, they try to lure the naive, I must say naive, evangelical Christians with this idea of making America a Christian nation. Especially their main speech is that even though you don't like whatever politician, but pick the Republican, but because they're going to appoint the conservative judges in the bench, and they will make the Christian morality into a law. 
That is their main sales pitch. And I know many of you chose, I cannot name the man who cannot, anyway. So it's like uh, we have a Baltimore in Washington, D.C., but sorry, if I offended uh, those of you voting for Republican, I, sh I, I want you to know I'm not a Democrat. I'm a true independent, but I'm speaking from what I know from the scripture. And then my point is this. Making Christian morality, moral, morality into legislation or law of the nation, that doesn't solve the problem. And we Christians are so naive about this conservative political speech or sales speech. That's the easy way out. Do you want to make America a real God-blessed Christian nation? You become a holy people. You obey God first before you call for the social actions. You know, in throughout the story, when Christians made a morality, Christian morality into the law, there's always backfiring. And we had a one, 1920, all well-meaning, pious Christians made a, they involved, they're the one who started a provision movement, and they banned all the fabrication, transportation, consumption of alcohols. You know the result of that? Rise of organized crime. It's unrealistic. If you're gonna, and then, you know, this is a point. Every, when the Christians make a Christian, I mean, these conservative people make a Christian morality as a law, they pick and choose. Why not adultery? Adultery is a law too. It's clear breakdown of Ten Commandments. Why do we send the adulterers to the jail too? And then half of us have to go to the jail. You know the problem? During the Roman Empire, early Christians, they lived under unfair legal system. Abortion was a very legal. And the children were actually, there was the late-term abortion. What late-term abortion? Indeed, during the Roman Empire, when child was born, you know the common way of abortion? You don't want it, just to leave the child in the marketplace and let it die, or somebody to pick up the child. And the Christians is the one who picked the children, especially girls because girls were less valuable back then. Before they, all these criminals took over you know, girls and they make them into the, all the prostitutes and everything, they rescued the babies. In Roman Empire, law was very unjust, especially to Christian, but it was a Christian faithfulness that converted the empire. So don't think, just to, you know, picking the conservative sales pitch, will make America holy or more Christian. God is calling holy people to make a holy nation. Now, let us see the result of uh, making God a means to our end in this story. It's verse 5. When the Ark of the Lord's co uh, Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout with a brown shook, hearing the uproar, Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in Israel's camp? Didn't, didn't we beat them? Instead of being you know, depressed, they are, they are shouting. And then when they learned the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We are doomed. 
who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to these backward Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Amazing thing is the Philistines remember Israel's history. They know God of Exodus who beat the superpower Egypt for the slaves, the Hebrew slaves, and liberate them. So they were afraid. And they said, let's man up, double up, and let's fight. And the result was, verse 10, Philistines fought, and Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to their tent. Slaughter was a very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And then the Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas died. His second defeat was worse than first defeat. First, they lost 4,000. Second, they lost 30,000. First battle was without the war. Second battle is a doubly bitter war because they fought with the ark, and not only they lost the battle, they lost the ark of God to pagans. It became so sad and so discouraging that later in this chapter, verse 16, when the survivor of the battle came and told Eli, the high priest, that I just came from battle line, I fled from it this very day, Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before Philistine, and the army suffered the heavy losses, and you two sons, Hophni and Phineas are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he, he died. For he was very old and heavy, and he had led Israelite 40 years. And his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, who was pregnant near the time of delivery, she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and her father-in-law and the husbands were dead. She went into the labor and gave her birth. And she was overcome by her labor pains. I might say more than labor pain, shock and grief. As she was dying, the woman attended her and said, don't disappear, you gave her birth to a son. Try to comfort them. You have a son. But her last word was that she named the boy, verse 21, Ichabot, saying the glory has departed from Israel because of a capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and husband. She said, repeating again, glory has repeated from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The Ark of God didn't make any difference in the battle. Why? It's not because God is not absent. We'll see later that God is actually there. But because people who brought the Ark into the, in the camp, they are not obedient people. Psalm 46 says very, very clearly, God doesn't want sacrifices and offerings. What God wants is our heart. When we use a God as a means to get what we want, 
You know what? It's a scary thing. This is a warning that I want to give. God will let you fall. God will go through the failure. And now the whole Israel, they not only lost the battle, but they lost the ark of God, presence of God. And she even said the glory of God is gone. Some Jewish people call it first exile of God. This is a first exile of God. Those of you know the Bible's biblical story, Israel, later when they had a kingdom, and then a few, few hundred years later, when kingdom was conquered, first by Assyria and second time by Babylon and completely captured, and then Israelites were taken to Babylonia as a prisoner of a war, Ezekiel said, glory of God actually departed from Jerusalem temple going to east. That is, uh, Jewish people said God actually went to exile with his people. So one, warning and then slowly a good comfort is this. God is not afraid of a failure. When we fail, God is willing to fail with us and go to our failure with us. God is humiliated with us. But good news is this. When God is humiliated, that doesn't mean God ended or God is done. Israelites, they all thought they are doomed and they are done. They lost God. But rest of the story, chapter you know, 5 and 6, it's all about the surprising raid of the lost ark in the Philistine. So let me go quickly on that one. Look at the chapter 5. After Philistine had captured the ark of God, they took it from the Ebenezer to Ashdod, and then they carried the ark in the Dagon, their God's temple, and set it beside the Dagon. So, they didn't destroy the Ark of God, but they kept it as a souvenir of the war. And they actually put it in their uh, pagan God's uh, temple as a display that we beat the Israelites and now they belong, you know, they, they, they below us. And their God is one of our so-called inferior God. This is very common practice of ancient times. Romans were very good. Thousand years later, when Romans conquered many parts of the Mediterranean world, they didn't destroy other religions. They all welcomed other religions. But in the premise of Caesar is the Lord. Caesar is a top dog. All of you, Caesar was God in Roman's mind. There was their state ideology. And then all other gods below Caesar. So this is a very common practice. And now let's see what happened. While Israelites, you know, crying for the loss of God and, you know, total doom. Let's see what happened. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early next day, there was a Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and Dagon and put him back in his place. They thought that was a mistake. Where was the earthquake? They put it back. But the following morning when they rose, there was a dagger, fallen on his faces on the ground. Before the ark of the Lord, his head and hands had been broken off as it was lying on the threshold 
only his body remained. So God made it clear that it was not an accident. Dagon was uh, that the idol of a Philistine was uh, destroyed or, or killed or raided by God. Not only that, what happened? Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Asher and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with the tumors. When the people of Asher saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon and our God. So they called together all of the rulers of Philistine and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered that, have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. Gath. And so they moved the ark of, God, uh, ark of God of Israel. By the way, Gath is a hometown of, some of you know, famous giant, Goliath. Anyway. And then later, verse 10, they sent the ark back another city, Akron. And people of Akron, they cry out. They brought us the ark of God Israel around us to kill us and our people. So picture we get is very comical. They capture the ark of God, and they are very proud and then you know showing off. And then slowly they are saying they 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 were panicked, and they're like this ark of God is like an exploding bomb. And they try to defuse, and they, they since, since they couldn't defuse, they tossing to each other one city to another. All the five main cities of Philistine ark was we don't want it. No, you take it. You don't want it. They've been kind of tossing each other. It's a comical, it's a, com it's a comedy. And then top of that, I mean, there was a, a that God afflicted with the tumors. Biblical scholars think that this was actually a dysentery. Dysentery. Ask uh, uh, Alex Lee, he's a GI doctor, so he can tell you more. I'm, you know. And because later when they made a peace offering to God, guilt offering to God, they made a gold rat. And oftentimes this infectious disease was spread by the rodent. And that's what, and so those of you who need a little bit of dysentery, it has what we short-term missionaries call the, it comes with an ad, explosive diarrhea. You know, when you go to a mission field and you drink the water that you, you know, that the missionary is told not to drink, Guess what happened? You, ha you get ad. Throughout the mission field, you know, bathroom will be your friend. These Philistines, they, after they captured the you know, uh, uh, Ark of God, what happened? Everybody's uh, living on bathroom, living in the bathroom. And then finally, they decide to return the Ark of God. But again, here, when they consulted their religious expert, they said, send back with a peace offering or a guilt offering. And then, so when they were sending back, they don't know, nobody wants to carry. <laughs> no one wants to go near the Ark of God, so they decide. Guess what, verse seven, chapter six, verse seven, now then I'll get a new cart ready and two cows that have calves and have not been yoked. Hitch the cow to the cart and take the calves away and then pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord, put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it on, 
Uh, put the gold object you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. It goes up to its own territory toward the best Shemesh. Then the Lord has brought the uh, great disaster on us. But if does not, we'll know that it was not his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. Even to the end, Philistines, they thought, maybe everything is a coincidence. So let's verify one more time. So what they did was that they prepared this uh, cow that never been yoked. That means not trained to carry any, any luggages or any, any load. And they have actually calves, the mother cows, they, you know, they brought it. And mother cows, when they have a little baby, cow, baby calves, they're hard, you know, just like a human. They don't want to leave the cow, you know, baby cows. That's what their idea. So they prepared the most unqualified means of transportation and to see whether it was really God's hand on upon them. And that's what happened. Then what? Verse, 10, verse 11. When they sent it off, verse 12, the cows went straight up toward the Beth Shemesh, which is the nearest Israelite town, keeping on the road, lowing all the way. They did not turn to right or to the left. The ruler of a Philistine followed them as far as the border of a Bethlehem. And when they saw it, and, and then they recognized this was God's work. Here it is. Phili Israelite, they tried to control God. They assume about God, right? Philistines, they thought they conquered God. They tried to assimilate God into their religious, you know, or political hegemony. And God even though God is humiliated, God is still sovereign. God is still king. God's power and holy presence is intact. And now the lesson from Philistine is this. These people definitely witness, experience that God is greater than their idol or their God, David. They definitely saw the greatness of God. Yet, what did they do at the end? They rejected God. Instead of falling before God and then finding whatever to Israelite priests and say that this is a true God and the God above all gods and we need to worship this God, guess what? They refused to receive God and send him away. And as they rejected, this is, this is what James chapter 3 said. James chapter 2 said, Do you believe God exists? Even demons ex believe God exists and they fear God. You know, believing God's existence, that's not a real faith. Real faith is God is not only powerful. At the end, God is for you. God loves you. Philistines, why they think God punished them. God could destroy them, obliterate them completely from the face of earth. God punished them. And God could, you know, God who punished them, God could heal them too. But their faith doesn't go that far. They definitely experienced God, but they didn't come to recognize God in their life.
How about us? When you experience something greatness of God, do you, that, does it make you recognize His sovereign lordship and then obey more? Or do you sort of keep the, some kind of safe distance with God? Now let me bring the final point of sermon. Because this story makes sense, not, not in itself, but only in the New Testament, only in the life of Christ. As somebody said, God is safe only in Christ. As Billy Graham preached that uh, the true ark of God is Jesus Christ. When you're on the ark of God, then you're safe. So let me bring, let me bring the whole, whole this story in the life of Christ. And therefore that comes to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 11, has a famous early church's hymns or songs about God. In this hymn, verse 6 said, Even though Jesus Christ is a being of very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantages. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Just as the Ark of God experienced a failure through Israelite and humiliated by Israelite sinfulness and stupidity, Bible said later, the Messiah experienced humil humiliation. He humbled himself to the point of death, not just any kind of death, death on the cross which is the most humiliating death of the ancient time. And then what happened? Bible says surprisingly, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name and that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. Now, the ark of God in our story, illustrate humiliation. It's a foretelling sign of humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ, who took our shame and failure into himself, and then he rose again from the dead for our victory and our eternal life. Early church fathers, they came up with this idea called the harrowing of a hell. They say, Christ raided a hell. We all know Good Friday, right? That's when Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And then we know all the Sunday, he rose from the dead. What about the Saturday? What do you think happened on Saturday? The three days he was dead, especially Holy Saturday. Early church, early church fathers called it harrowing of a hell. Harrowing of a hell. And some people, I mean, harrowing hell is, you know, passages like 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 and 19, for Christ suffered once for sins and righteous for unrighteous, bring you to God and was to put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made a proclamation to imprison spirit. 
Some people misunderstand that uh, say, you know, Christ evangelized in hell. That's, I don't think, the point. Christ simply entered the hell. And then God, Christ, you know, proclaimed what? God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son on the cross. And whosoever believes him shall not die, shall not come to hell, but live an everlasting life. Christ proclaimed God's undying love in the hell. And the hell didn't like Christ and pleaded Christ just like the Philistines, leave us alone. That's the nature of a hell. And Christ left the hell. This is a harrowing of a hell. This story tells us our God is not afraid of a failure. Our failure. Actually, when we fail, oftentimes we think God will not work with God will not work anymore. Think again. Israelite to fail, but God still worked. My failure doesn't mean that God failed. Don't ever confuse. <coughs> Actually, forest fail, God's kingdom will continue. Do you know that? Then why do we work hard? To be in God's joy, to join Him and enjoy His glory and the joy in expanding His kingdom in this world. It's a really humbling thought that even if we fail, God never fails. Now, Christ gave us a sign that he really loved us. What is sign? That is a scar on the cross. When he met the disciples after Easter, what did he show to them? He showed his scars and asked them to touch my hands and put your hands under my side. We're going to sing a song as our prayer and dedication. I'm thankful for the scars. We all have scars in life. But after all, I have to tell you, maybe our scars came from our own mistakes or somebody else's unkindness. But Christ suffered the greatest pain and got the scar for you and me. God is not afraid of a failure. God is such an awesome God, holy God, different God. God goes to our failure and God goes through our failure. God finds us in our failure and God brings us back from our failure to his glory. That's the story of a raid of a lost ark. And dear brothers and sisters, nothing in this world will ashamed us and scare us. Actually, the only thing will give us fear is, is that we take God for granted. We take God lightly. We trying to somehow assimilate God into our system. God is a sovereign. God is a holy. God is a Lord. And he's a good shepherd. He will go with us. And because of that, we are not afraid of nothing in this universe. Even hell, we are not afraid. Because with the Christ, we will conquer everything and we will 